Hi, welcome back to Headbangers. I'm here with Nathan today. Join us, Winterfellif. It does kind of make me smile internally a little bit to think that, you know, we've got Bloodstock Festival and Bruceless Art Festival still booked mm. that are cancelled at this moment in time. And that our album launch show, you know, 15 months after it came out, might actually be at Bloodstock. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. hopefully, hopefully we'll see you there because we've, we've got tickets for that so if everything goes out well we'll be there in, a, in the crowd with a beer seeing you guys so well, I, I hope it fingers crossed yeah, we've always had great times there so um that'd be an interesting an interesting platform from which to do the first album show a year after it came out which is a, an oddity definitely. over a year yeah well, will it be um what, it'll be about 14, 15 months, won't it, after the album came out? <laughs> well, the first, I think the first single came out mid-February 2020. Yeah, yeah, it did actually, didn't it? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's been quite an... So we're almost... A, we're over a year now since we launched something from it. So, yeah, uh, a strange platform to, to do an album from. But nevertheless, it came out and people liked it. So let's hope they still remember it's our new album and that we've not done anything with it yet. <laughs> I, I genuinely thought it was incredible. Um, yeah. I've given it a couple of listens. I was like, oh, it. What what really strikes you me as you for you as a band is like you kind of mix like these brutal sort of like black and black fives, but then you also have this just huge atmospheric feel. How do you sort of like go about juggling that? Um, because they all flow so well, um, and I think you guys as a band. Uh, like almost the perfect example for other bands to sort of look at and go, okay, if I want to do something like this, I should sort of focus on trying something like this as well. Do you know what I mean? Like it flows very well and it's got a lot of sort of thought process process into it as you listen to it. So what? how do you really go about it? Right, you know, with writing and stuff like that to make it not you know, like just flow? So it's an interesting question. Uh to be honest, it, it, it's kind of hard to sort of unpick your creative process and tell somebody about it because, you know, you just kind of write how you write. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, mm. I, I don't think that lots of people sound like us and I don't think we sound like lots of people in, in, in certain ways. Obviously, you know, you can say it's black metal from listening to the album, but having played with a few different guitarists over the years, not many people play like Nick and I. Um, mm. and, and I think that the way we've kind of sort of self-taught over many many years and kind of come through playing for myself playing in you know uh, like death doom and funeral doom sort of stuff and then kind of progressing onwards from there the tunings and the types of guitars and the approach into and moving out into black metal i think that that kind of lends itself to to that kind of flowing thing that we talk about you know i, I suppose partly that's to do with my uh, my ocd as a writer a little bit that i don't always love things that are really choppy and kind of go all over the place and i think some bands kind of rely on that as an as an aesthetic and and they uh, they kind of almost thrive off that chaos whereas I, I i've always been more of the school of thought of write one good riff and then write another good riff and then write another good riff and make sure they all kind of go together in a way that that keeps things moving and has a few twists and turns and some dynamism but that that makes sense and it isn't, isn't just a kind of i don't know the 50th riff you hear in like 20 minutes, mm. 22 minutes, sorry, you know, like don't get me wrong, I, I love all kinds of like chaotic death metal and all sorts of things. But if you, for example, put a Winterfiller track against, I don't know, like something off the the latest Morbid Angel album or something off like an Ulcerate album or something, you know, you, 
you've got some really contrasting styles of sounds there and, and how people approach songwriting and what they see as that kind of landscape. And I think for us, and, and, and obviously Simon can speak for himself in terms of the drums, but I think we've always been of the opinion that things need to breathe, things need to kind of grow naturally and and that you need to kind of to play to the atmosphere rather than overplay and overfill the space and kind of be too technical for what we're trying to do. So mm. there are kind of perhaps self-imposed restraints we put on ourselves in some ways. But um, I, I think it just comes at the heart of it from trying to write, you know, songs and riffs that we like and that that kind of go together and make sense together and create that atmosphere. And obviously playing the guitar is part of it, but, you know, that, that underlying desire for it to just be no filler, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Like, I think when <clears throat> when we're writing new material, one of the th most important things that we always talk about is, um, hopefully you don't mind me using a bit of mild swearing now, um, no, is is having is having like a, a decent shit filter. So, mm -hmm. you know, we'll come out with a lot of material, but then being able to filter out what's what's mediocre, what really works or not, is something that I think we've always been very conscious of, particularly particularly Chris and Nick. Um, and 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 knowing what our identity is as a as a sound <laughs> as well is something that we've always been very, very um sort of hot on and you know we all listen to all sorts of different like music no matter the genre um but we know what we're supposed to sound like what we want Winterfield to sound like and we and we we stick to that quite rigidly and i think that's important and people people kind of you can listen to a song and people know it's us immediately because they, they that's like the trademark Winterfield sound and, you know mm -hmm. like i say we love all sorts of different you know, black and death metal and all, all sorts of other genres of music. Um, and what works for somebody else doesn't necessarily work for us. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting what you said as well, um, that, you know, there's not an overly used amount of brutality where it doesn't need to be there. Like, it's actually quite a therapeutic experience to listen to Winterfell, to be honest. Like, <laughs> I can sit there just like, you know, study or do whatever I need to do and just have it in the background and just like, it sends you into a bit of a trance, really. Um, so yeah, I think like it all flows very nice. It's not like you don't add parts in just because it needs to be there. You put the parts that are just fit right to make this, you know, mm. the songs go smoothly. Yeah, I, th I think that's the idea. I think it's, it's just not to overplay. And I, I don't know. I don't want to pick on any bands that kind of I think do that necessarily. But I, I just remember seeing some bands like that. There's this one band called. Um, do you, you ever see that band Into Armor play? I've heard no, of no, no. Like the drummer's like ridiculous, and I think he writes all the material. He's like a superb, crazy technical drummer. But I was watching them, and I kind of almost forgot that they were playing, and that it was just sort of like the drummer show. And um, mm. and 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 I don't ever want that to be the case with with the sort of thing that we do. And obviously, like you know, they're, there's nothing to take away from them. They're absolutely incredible musicians, and and particularly that drummer guy. But I think when you present a band to me in some ways that everyone needs to kind of be there and and stuff needs to kind of support each other rather than sort of dominate. And yeah. so, you know, obviously Simon's probably a lot more technically capable than some of the stuff that we do on the records. And, and, and maybe we are as guitar players, but you need to kind of give things space and you need to give things the opportunity to kind of to harmonize together and to, and to create that kind of, without sounding like a dick, that sort of sonic landscape. And, um, mm -hmm. 
that that expansive sound and that kind of wall of sound that comes from winter filler tracks and and it not be just sort of dominated by one thing because like you know if you hear a record with like snare drum that's like a hundred times louder than the rest of it or kick drum that's louder than the rest of it or the vocals are really up front you just sort of forget what else is going on and i think that's when you you, you kind of sort of don't appreciate what the band has done and what songs have been written because you focus too much on one thing so i hope we try and kind of think about writing records as people that listen to and kind of critique and understand and appreciate other people's stuff as well it's about so. balance and space <laughs> and and writing music with a sense of balance and space particularly i mean that, that that's quite literally when when we're like mixing a record there's an important thing obviously lots of bands think about that but lots of bands i think get it wrong and i'm not saying we've got it perfect but i think particularly with our new record we've been really happy with the mix we got out of that and and quite literally talking about balance the the balance that we've got really emphasizes i think that space between the instruments and one another thing we've always been very um conscious of is um using almost like restraint in in songwriting mm -hmm. and not going too fast um or not going too slowly you know just again it's that kind of trademark sound we've i guess we've all like uh, created for ourselves but um that that idea of um restraint and one of the most important things for us and this does sound this does sound massively cliched as a, as a bit of a muso cliche but the space between the notes is often as important as the notes themselves Mm. That does sound very cliche. I know, but no, it's it, really it true. It doesn't. It is 100% true because, like, you know, like if you if you listen to an album, it's all also about leading leaving a lasting memory on the listener. At the end of the day, like, um, it's uh, that's what amazes me about you guys because I, I'll listen to I've listened to you know your newest album today and over the last couple of weeks and it, it is amazingly relaxing as well as like sort of like it does take you off guard with some of the brutal sections but you've got such a unique sound and it proper stands out um and it it's clear that you've all put in so much thought into how you structure your music thanks yeah it's appreciated and i'm glad i'm glad you guys noticed hmm. <clears throat> and also on the back of that as well you know before this album there was an entire folk album so what was like, I can also see like the influence of that kind of feeding over to the new album as well. Like, do you ever intend to go down that route again? Like, you know, just going like dropping the black metal for another album and just going down a different musical route. Like, What was the thought process behind going and making a full folk album? And then what's kind of the process for the future, maybe? Like, you know, would that be something that'd be reoccurring? I mean, like never say never, obviously, but, um, you know, when, when I think about that album in the context of our other album, then that's our sixth album so we've done five kind of full-length albums and splits and compilations and you know other things around that and a demo obviously in the in the years before it and so we always kind of explored acoustic songs and folk ideas on the albums and um i don't know like nick who plays bass but he's also a really great guitar player he and i were um we're sort of living together at the time we wrote that album and um we sort of thought about maybe just kind of doing something while we were kind of in each other's company and doing some acoustic stuff and kind of writing stuff together while we had this, this sort of space and time and maybe just putting it out as like an ep or something you know of our own 
Yeah. Of being Winterfell. But actually, as we kind of came up with stuff and the sort of themes and concepts really seem to fit around Winterfell. And obviously, it making sense of something that a Black Metal band can do. Then, you know, as I've said in interviews before, you know, we got the other guys involved reasonably soon mm -hmm. and, and started making it into a, into a full-length album. And I think we wrote 15 or 16 songs for that album and maybe 12 or 13 kind of made the final thing. And then we we did a few extras that were going to be on Reckoning Dawn, the newest one, but but we left them off because they um, they just were the wrong feeling. I think that you know Reckoning Dawn is really kind of epic and quite um, powerful and upfront, and you know one of the more immediate records I think we've made in a long time. And we we done a, quite a few nice acoustic tracks that I just don't think fit in there. So we were able to leave them off. So there are a few things kind of kicking around there, sort of semi finished, and, and that we, we we kind of put down in the studio. So maybe we'll do something again. Maybe we'll put, I don't know, a bonus EP on something. Or, you know, maybe we'll do something else. I don't know. But ultimately, it was a, it was a kind of a, a nice experiment to do to prove to ourselves, I think, that we could write something that had the atmosphere and hopefully classify other albums and it be cohesive and not just like my first folk album that some guys think they could make and actually it kind of competes and be, and be regarded as something important within the English folk scene as well as, you know, Black Metal album. Exactly. Mm. It's still got that Winterfell of DNA in it, though. Even though it doesn't have the, some of the Black Metal elements in it, it still sounds like you guys. And obviously, like I said, it carries over to the new album as well. Like you, I can definitely say you took some elements from that and applied it well to the new one. I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, it makes sense for, for, for bands like ours to do it. And, and even though it kind of put a few people's nose out joint for some reason uh, when we released it, there's... It's not like they were the first one that ever did it. You know, Simon's wearing a, a, a Bergtat Ulva t-shirt, are you? And um, or is it, is it? It's like, a Nathan's Madrigal one, but, yeah. So, you know, like obviously it. they made Kveldsanker before that. And that was their second album doing a full kind of 35, 40 minute folk album. You know, other bands have done it, October Falls, and they just released one last year, Sis or Sis, I hope you say it. Imperium. You know, Drudd could have done one. It's, it's not like it's, it's out of the realms of possibility that bands like ours could do it, and it makes sense. So I, I just think it was something that we wanted to do, and, you know, I'm glad we did it. And I think it, it really shocked a lot of people that we aren't just two-dimensional, you know, black metal sort of thing. And it's, and it's actually, um, there actually is a, a depth and a knowledge to our songwriting and, and our abilities, and I'm glad we were able to show it. And, and I mean, you know, it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, gimmick decision either it was something we'd spoken about for a number of years and again like you know we all listen to a lot of atmospheric folk music as well so it's, it's a genuine you know interest and love from 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 us as listeners of music as, as well it wasn't just like oh we should try something different now it was it was always it was always on the cards. We've always done. There's always been tracks like that on a, pretty much every single Winterfell album. Um, so it it did seem like a really natural step for us, I think. And um, what was really great about um, doing that it was it it allowed us to um, play some really interesting concerts for for the around the release of the albums as well in in venues that we wouldn't normally get to play in. So some like really historic churches, um, the Cheatham School of Music in Manchester, which is, mm. uh, has, we, we performed twice in their medieval baronial hall, which was just absolutely incredible, yes. amazing atmosphere during those shows. And we, we kind of, 
we got a few of the session musicians in to you know to have a cellist um and violin live with us um and they were all candlelit so it was a really atmospheric environment uh for that music to be played in and and it's not like it's something it's something we couldn't do at, like a normal show like you wouldn't you wouldn't see us like i don't know playing rebellion in manchester doing that mm. you know yeah. it wouldn't yeah. fit at all um yeah. or wherever you know so it was really great to be able to play some interesting different um places that had a really fascinating history for themselves so like the cheating school of music where we performed in the baronial hall um the the kind of area that they'd allocated us for our dressing room was directly behind the baronial hall and um it was used by um the elizabethan alchemist john d as his living quarters when he was the I think he was the provost of Cheatham School of Music. It's one of the oldest schools in the country. It's, it goes back to the medieval period, obviously. And he lived there. And there's a famous there's a famous bit of folklore around John Dee when he was living there, because he was a an occultist, so to speak. He allegedly summoned the devil in this room. And there's this oak table in the room, which is still there today. In fact, our rider was literally put on it. <laughs> and there's this. And there's this scorch, there's this like scorch mark in the oak on one of the corners, uh, and it's in like a hoof shape. And mm. um, the story is that he summoned the devil, and the devil scorched this table with his hoof. Um, but I think in reality, he probably had had a few too many uh, beverages of an evening, yeah. and probably tipped his candle over, burnt the table, <laughs> and had to make up some story to the people yeah. that he was renting the rooms from. <laughs> I summoned the devil and the devil burnt the table. <laughs> so we were, that, we were getting yeah. ready to perform live and there's this table that John D summoned the devil on in our dressing room. <laughs> it doesn't feel right that there was like 40 cans of lager on it, does it? Or whatever. No, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so like, obviously you guys write a lot about Anglo-Saxon sort of history and law. Would you like classify yourselves as history buffs? Um, I guess it kind of goes without saying, um, but would you what what kind of like interests you about history uh, in that way to like write a lot of music about it? I mean, that's quite a deep question for a, a, a limited period video interview. But <laughs> the I guess my main feelings on it are, uh, as I've spoken about in lots of interviews over the years, you know, it's not just something limited to now. Well, Simon, I first met years and years ago probably getting on mm. for 15 years ago or something um o over a kind of uh, a mutual passion for for english history english history and folklore and 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 some of the kind of historic you know national sites in the country and things like that so i, I don't know I, I guess you know we, we've kind of our, our knowledge has kind of progressed along with the sort of the, the the trajectory of the band and we've become more and more interested in it as we've gone along and um it's one of those things that that is hard to kind of put into context for somebody if they kind of don't have that passion as well. But it, you know, essentially, it's like anything, I guess. If if you sort of see value in it, and and particularly when you're in a band, there's there's obviously a huge value in in narrative and storytelling and the ability to kind of put context um, mm. onto things. And I think the way that we've we've tended to use the um, the kind of Saxon history, particularly. Um, uh, 
obviously not limited to that, but you know, we've, we've done a lot of stuff around that because of the kind of the way that, that it's documented and written and the kind of poetic, almost like lyric like way mm. it's written. And I think what's interesting for us and what we've always done in Winterfell, particularly, is, is this idea of, I, I guess, like trying to use that, that history and, and kind of bring it into the modern world. So when you kind of study this stuff and read around it and see the kind of stories and narrative and, and tales that those people are writing down and telling, it, it's almost quite interesting to see how we haven't really changed much as a species over the, over the yeah. millennia and, and how they still kind of fight those struggles and how they still kind of go through those turmoils and battles and power struggles and ideological struggles and all those kind of things that we see reflected in society today. And whatever side of those debates you're on, um, I don't think that should kind of put you off listening to some context about it and, mm. and trying to kind of galvanize your own opinions about it. Because one of the things that's always concerned me, not going off the tangent, is this kind of inability we seem to have in the modern era to to engage in meaningful discourse with each other and to and sort of talk about ideas and, and, and gain consensus rather than this kind of shouting backwards and forwards at each other, which seems to be the kind of the mainstay for... Uh, for modern interaction, particularly through social media. So we've always tried to have quite a measured approach to it and to to put kind of some context around these stories mm -hmm. and to try and bring them into the modern world, as I say. So, you know, how, uh, there's, there's a famous quote, you know, talking about you know, how can you know where you are if you don't know where you've been? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that lots of people will kind of talk poorly about use of history of black metal and, and, and talk about, you know, it as being a, a negative thing or you know want to call it all sorts of names but actually i think it's uh it's a really important thing that that many of those people probably don't really even know the history of their own countries never mind like the history of others and all the sort of things that have gone on so it's uh it, it's kind of partly educational partly kind of really interesting as an aesthetic for lyrics and um and just a really fascinating time period that i think is misunderstood and or not very well known amongst people in this country and and something that's worth sharing and keeping alive and it's unique you know we all we're all we all kind of sort of taken in by the the fantastical and fantasy I guess, elements of things like norse mythology and everyone loves the kind of mm. norse runes and the kind of stories of you know fenris and thor and all this kind of stuff and woden and all that stuff, all those kinds of things and yet there's equal equally interesting stories and unique rune rows that exist in the in the in the british history of that and and you know lots of it's sort of shared european history but there are kind of little sects of it that exist within the uk or ireland or scandinavia mm -hmm. or you know central europe and actually i really like it when bands are themed around that because it's not just the kind of done to death hail satan yay beer yeah, you know, yeah exactly. kind of exists and so that, that's that's why we've themed our band around it because we're we're genuinely interested in it and you know it's pushed people's buttons and i think people have misunderstood some of our intentions at times but you can't account for everybody's taste can you and, and you know i don't think you should try so we are who we are and you know we, we're much we're very open to kind of talking to people about it another, yeah. another thing that's uh i think quite important about it um is the fact that for us uh as you know english guys it's it's authentic you know that's that's what it's what we are you know um mm. it's 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 our history um it's it's what we authentically are we're not trying to be some kind of parody of like norse black metal or norwegian or mm. swedish or finnish black metal or wherever you know whatever um it, we, you know, it's it's our it's our identity so 
that's what I think one of the most important things when when I when I'm listening to music is if a band has a sense of authenticity about it it mm. makes them it puts them on another level I think um certainly no matter what that is whether it's whether they're talking about history or or whatever um so I think that sense of authenticity is very important um and uh what's more authentic than your own history no, absolutely. And I think, especially what you said as well, you know, like Norse mythology, all the Satan and the beer stuff, like it's so being overdone. Like there's plenty of bands that are already doing that. So I think it's good to have like you guys doing it about English history. Because, you know, as much as I can think, I, I can't really think of many other bands that are doing that. And obviously, black metal is a good template to base that on. And it goes well with the topics. So. Also, on the lines of that as well, as a black metal band, um, do you ever face, like, sort of judgment from, you know, the fans or, you know, other people, you know, because I guess with black metal, some of the fans can be quite judgmental if it's not like, you know, the 90s Norwegian black metal, and especially being, like, an English black metal band. Do you ever face any of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess so, you know, and I, I'm sure I'm sure there's probably people that talk you know negatively about a band and well, you can't for everybody you certainly can't please everybody if you think about the history of british black metal it didn't really exist very much before bands like ourselves and fan and world and throne and a forest of stars kind of came along and started doing it mm. so yeah it, it, it's really kind of strange to be told by somebody who thinks they're a purist for for black metal um that you aren't doing what they consider to be black metal but given that there wasn't really that much black metal from the UK, how do you know what UK black metal is unless we've come up with it? So yeah. I, I, I think there's that side of the coin to it as well. I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying we invented it, you know, but you know what I mean? Like, there, yeah. there wasn't very much history of it before five or six bands, you know, around us kind of started doing it. So I think we've had to kind of almost create an identity for it to some extent. And, and certainly with our endeavors, I hope we've kind of put, the UK on the map a little bit for for this kind of style of music and I know that if I think back to sort of 2006-ish when we were starting you could count the amount of UK black metal bands on two hands probably mm. whereas now uh, you know there's, there's some page on Facebook that somebody joined me to that's the UK past present and future or something and there's like six seven eight hundred bands on there and that's probably not all of them mm. and you know that's only within What's that? Ten or fifteen years, you know. So I think it's. It, I just don't. I don't know. You just can't take criticism for everybody. If they, if they, if they want to to just listen to Burzum and Mayhem, and and that's good enough for them, then fine. You know, they don't have to come to win it for the show. They don't have to buy a win for this record. But equally, we're huge kind of historians and fans of this kind of music ourselves, and it's not like we haven't got the the providence to be uh, you know allowed to play this kind of stuff. So. Yeah. You know, look behind me. Like that's just like that's just my CD collection. You know, so that's yeah. <laughs> a massive collection. It's not my vinyl collection, which is equally as big. So, mm. not necessarily having a huge CD and vinyl collection makes one next one. <laughs> you know, we're 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 people who are into this music as well as people that play it, and we're you know we're not just some like numpties that have come off the street that have just decided to kind of adopt black metal and, and think it's a cool thing to do for a few years because our hardcore band didn't take off or something. And we've literally all been listening to black metal literally since we were teenagers. So, you know, it is what it is. And and talking about UK black metal as a resurgent uh, genre from like the mid 2000s when, when we were getting going, um, it's funny, isn't it? Because yeah, 
all the all the history of second wave black metal in Norway and Scandinavia is is amazing, and we all love that. That's fantastic. You know, some of the most iconic, greatest bands came from that genre-defining era then. But people forget that black metal actually is an English invention in the first place. I was going to say yeah. that with Venom. Venom, yeah. you know, <laughs> Venom in Newcastle in the eighties. You know, that's that's. If uh, funnily enough, I was listening to a really great uh, podcast with. Um, the old drummer of uh, Cradle of Filth, Nick Barker, who's mm. who's uh, who's a friend of ours, and he uh, he's a hilarious guy, really funny guy, and um, really he, he he did he did a he did a podcast with uh, Alan, the singer of Primordial. And it's a great listen, um, not to distract your uh, listeners from your you know wonderful <laughs> no, podcast okay. channel but <laughs> i'd recommend people go and listen to it because it's got some great tales about mm. um cradle of filth when they were first starting and when nick joined cradle of filth and his his kind of origins in like uh uk thrash bands in the 80s late 80s and so forth and 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 it's funny we're talking about like the the kind of el- elitism and issues people have had with black metal bands from the uk but he when he left cradle he uh, joined dimu borgir mm. and he talks at length in this podcast about when he was first going over to norway to rehearse with dimu and uh he, he they'd be in the pub after rehearsals and uh you know they used to get so much shit for being in cradle of filth um you know because they were the the, the English black metal band that didn't have the kind of credentials of the Norwegian bands and mm. all these people that kind of gave him shit would, he'd be in the bar with them in Norway and he'd be like, well, I'm here now. thought you said you were going to kill me. And you know, he's this, <laughs> he's this, he's this, he's this big hooligan from Chesterfield. <laughs> so, you, know? so you, you wouldn't want to miss with that fella. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's, yeah. a, he's a man mountain, isn't he? Thoroughly nice guy and an incredible drummer, uh, absolutely legendary drummer. Um, so, so yeah, there's a there's there's a there's a massive heritage of black metal in the UK, and it's right that there should be a strong black metal scene in the UK. I think. I think it's what, like ludicrous that um, that he got criticised, you know, for going over, being with Dimu Borger, and you know, from being in Cradle of Filth when Cradle of Filth and Dimu Borger are quite simultaneously similar in the sort of orchestral sort of elements to it. So. It's quite funny just how that prejudice comes with it, but then obviously, like you said, black metal came from the UK with bands like Venom and Merciful Fate and stuff like that. So yeah, it's always a bit hypocritical when you know newer black metal bands get criticised from being from a different country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What can I mean, you do? From Denmark, aren't they? But um, but yeah, that say that whole era. I know what you're saying. That era of that era of black metal, that first wave of black metal, you know, yeah. uh, Bathory, Hellhammer, Celtic Frost, and so forth, yeah. But it just feels strange to me that someone would kind of give you uh, shit about being in a band from the UK, like, you know, I'm not from 1995 or from Norway, therefore, <laughs> I am not, you know, I am yeah. not, I, I am not burgt out by Ulva, so I've got to be what I am, which is, you know, a guy from, from England writing songs about my history. So, yeah. you know, I think that to me that feels pretty authentic but you know if you don't agree with it well there's lots of other bands you can buy yeah well that's that's what i find crazy about it when people like almost go oh you know um because if you want to get technical about it technically the uk invented 
little in general. So, like, if anything, yeah. we've got the biggest say. Like, yeah. You know I mean? I mean, you think like, about lots of the major genres, even some of the kind of ones that I don't like as much. You know, you think about lots of dance music, lots of indie music, metal, punk. You know, it's all from it's all from the UK originally. I mean, it might have been done better other places over the years, but you know, our, our little kind of island nation has not done terribly badly to represent itself mm -hmm. on the on the international scale with music. So, um, I don't know. It feels strange that people would would think negatively of black metal bands coming from here now. Yeah, yeah, it, it's crazy to think. Um, <laughs> what sort of the on the kind of subject, like what sort of do you think kind of spiked this new kind of rise in black metal bands either from the uk or in just general because i've noticed quite a lot of bands are almost going for a blackened vibe um when they've been doing new releases and stuff like what do you think sort of sparked it i don't know i was gonna say what do you think <laughs> i i don't know i think i'm gonna be a bit of a pessimist here um and I'm going to veer a bit away from the whole black metal, mm. you know, the pure black metal scene. Um, one thing I've noticed over certainly the last maybe five years or so is bands from other associated genres, whether it mm. be um, death metal, even a lot of like the kind of, you know, more fashionable metal hardcore crossover stuff they they started to adopt um a lot of the same kind of themes and a lot of the same aesthetics when it came to like the way their artwork would be designed the way certain merch would be designed um mm. even logos and stuff like that and these bands wouldn't sound anything like how black metal is supposed to sound but they kind of it's it's almost like co-opted the kind of aesthetic of black metal because i guess black metal it's got such a reputation. Everyone likes to have a dangerous reputa reputation, don't they? So mm, yeah. um, I think it was co-opted as a bit of a trend, a bit of a kind of uh, fashionable thing for, for a lot of bands that probably uh, didn't have too much of a connection with the genre, aside from it looking cool to them mm. and people thinking it looked cool. Um, and that's fine, you know. Things, things, you know, we're we're grown up enough to kind of shrug that stuff off, and people, you know, these trends and fashions go in phases, and I'm sure a lot of these bands just grew up a little bit and stopped wanting to, you know, sing about childish subject matters that they were covering, you know, particularly in the, you know, death metal sort of side of things, um, mm. or well, certainly some death metal bands anyway. Um, not naming any names, um, but um, and and I think black metal had a had more of a sophistication about it, um, so it you know it was accepted as a kind of <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> sound too elitist saying a higher art form, but mm. I think it is personally mm -hmm. in my opinion it is anyway. So I think yeah. I think those themes were co-opted by a lot of other genres you know bands using like almost like runic um logos very very big bands you know very big bands mm. using, like occult yeah. and runic uh symbology and um that's fine you know 
it's pretty 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 world isn't it so <laughs> yeah that's what you say, authenticity they're like not everyone would view that as being kind of authentic and i think that's where perhaps exactly. the fans kind of fell down with it so yeah. mm. I, I also think it's to do with um with black metal you can almost mold it in in sort of any other way and in quite well you know like sort of like i'd say the base level of black metal like you're talking like when it initially came out the you know um you're talking mayhem and all those other bands um the base level i think that you can just sort of add anything to it and it can almost if you craft it well it can sound pretty well done um i think that's con that kind of attributed to it as well and i think i think i think the internet's got a lot to answer for with it as well i think that the the kind of explosion in black metal uh, you know it's pretty much run parallel with the explosion of the internet um, and i think what was quite an impenetrable genre beforehand like if you if you were getting into black metal in the early 90s or you know the late 80s you were basically you had to be basically already really entrenched within the kind of tape trading scene like death metal and thrash mm. metal tape trading scene to be discovering these bands you weren't going to discover them any other way other than tape trading and the only people that were getting into black metal then were those people and i think that was very much the case uh, until probably the mid 90s um when you know things became more popular uh, communication uh w was made easier and certainly with the explosion of the internet, you know, it just makes black metal, uh, which was, is, you know, is still quite a, an elitist, um, impenetrable art form to get into. It's quite attractive in that sense to a lot of people. Mm. A lot, a lot of people, they want that. There's a there's a curiosity there that people want to explore, and um, I think that's that's what's contributed to it. And and obviously, you get some people that that like it as a bit of an edgy, fashionable thing. Yeah. And you get yeah, people that get into it um, at a later stage and they and they genuinely love it for the right reasons. And that's great, you know, that's 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 um, that's fine. And you know, people are always gonna like stuff as a as a fad kind of thing. Um, doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think it's gone into like the mainstream as well. Like you had that that awful Lords of Chaos movie come out recently. Um, and you know that it, it's there's a lot of conversations about it in mainstream media as well. Like me and Brad went to go see Lords of Chaos. It was a it was a fucking terrible film, but <laughs> yeah, I've not seen it. I've not seen it. I I um I uh, I've kind of refused to watch it um, just because yeah, I just didn't want it to. I didn't want it to like um, almost like tar my own uh, love of that yeah. period of black metal. And I think yeah. what was what was better, what was really, really good um, is that um, documentary that came out on Norwegian TV that was really well made. Um, a bit after, I think it came out last year, I, wa I watched it through the lockdown. I can't remember what it was called, um, but it's about the whole history of second wave Norwegian black metal, and, mm -hmm. and it covers all those things, which have been well covered in the past, you know. There's yeah, been, you must have thought that, been... um, that Until the Light Takes His documentary is really great, you know. Yeah, that, yeah, um, but yeah, that Lords of Chaos film, I, I, I won't be watching that. Uh, we gave in. We were like, should we just go out, get pissed, and watch it, and have like a bit of a laugh? 
and we were just shit faced in the cinema watching it, and like it was just so terrible. Like <laughs> it was one of those where you couldn't break through. I just can't comprehend it. Like it's got the the guy from Home Alone's brother or something, or cousin or something. Yeah, it's yeah. that guy in it. And you just think like, I'm sure if those those original guys, in fact, I'm sure if those original guys saw it, they probably you know want to just set it on fire. But I'm sure I half saw a, an interview with. Um, What's his chops from Mayhem, the bass player? Um, Metro Butcher. Butcher. Just yeah. Like, fuck that thing, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just how can you talk about a band like that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. So that Norwegian documentary is 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 I should have remembered because it's named after obviously the the famous shop. Uh, it's called Helvet, history of Norse black metal. Uh, it's a mini series on Norwegian TV. It's all, you can watch it in, I think you can download it off YouTube because um, it's not available in the UK to watch. And you have to download, somebody made a subtitle file for it so you can watch it and you have to download it all. Um, but it's well worth watching. It's really, really well made and it's really like kind of, uh, it's got interviews with uh, lots of really um, key figures in it and also some figures that aren't always um, in the mainstream kind of, conversation yeah, about he, that period to be the guy from thorns in it yeah yeah so like invented that style exactly so snorri from thorns is interviewed throughout and he's probably oh, he was my favorite part in it because i love i love thorns you know we all love thorns and um mm. he he's basically he's basically credited with um inventing the guitar picking style um that euronymous then went on to use to write the mysterious Thom satanus because he was he was hanging out with those guys and he and Euronymous would sit down and write riffs together and mm-hmm. him him and Euronymous Euronymous developed that guitar picking style and it's it's amazing because the documentary really di- di- digs deep down into the real roots of that that um, second wave of of black metal it's, it's 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 the most authentic kind of TV thing I've seen on the subject definitely I'm definitely gonna watch that out, yeah. What do you think you guys, you know, think it means to be like black metal, you know, because it's almost like compared to like death metal and thrash metal, which is just a musical genre, it's almost like a sort of stigma behind black metal. This is what it is to be black metal. Like not just talk about the corpse paint and stuff like that. <laughs> What's your guys take on that? What what it is to be black metal? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if we can answer that. I'm sure lots of people probably don't think that we are, but um, I, I, you know, for for me, it's about um, it, you know, it's about the atmosphere that you create with the music, and I think it's about the the presence and the and the aesthetic that you create with the with the words and the imagery and the um, the whole concept of the thing. You know, uh, thinking about our own band, you know, we, when we um, when we were sort of starting Winterfell and talking about the idea of history and 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 the idea of folklore and and I guess you know English black metal or whatever we call it, you know, then um, it, it was uh, it, I, not say conscious, but like we definitely didn't want to kind of go down that kind of corpse paint, black and white chains mm-hmm. and bullet belts and spikes kind of thing because it doesn't I don't know in some ways it doesn't belong to us. And even though we love those bands, I think when you're a band that's come along, whatever it would be, you know, kind of 15, 20 years later than some of those original, you know, mysteries and you know early Burzum and, and early Enslaved and all those kind of things that were out then, <clears throat> it doesn't make sense for us to try and parrot that back to people, as I've said many times before. And I think that, you know, Courts Paint and all, and all that kind of aesthetic was those guys' reactions to the 
the, the death metal scene at the time, the kind of the sort of social narrative that was going on for them at the time, and their reaction to their situation. And I don't know, I was trying to co-opt that. It's a strange thing for me, really. And and and, and I always wanted it to be a bit more about who we are and where we're from, and the kind of you know the the flowing landscapes of of northern England for me, or the you know the the rolling kind of Morven Hills for Sai and the the idea of this link between history and and the modern world and, and it I means something a little bit different, you know? I think um, one of the key elements for any black metal, no matter what the subgenre of black metal, is that to be defined as black metal, there has to be an uh, an, uh, an aura of mysticism about the, uh, the music. Um, and I don't mean mean that in too much of an esoteric way but there should be there should be a, a, a mystical element to that and whether that's us talking about folklore of the countryside that we all grew up in or whether that's guys from Norway talking about walking through a forest in the middle of the night and the kind of uh, spirit that that instills in them I think that's kind of along the same sort of lines and the same kind of feeling, but just expressed in two different ways. And I think it's that essence of mysticism that's key that you don't really get with a, with different forms of, of metal or whatever, you know, whatever, mm. the, whatever the subgenre. And I think that's key. And I think that's where, I think that's where some bands that try and do it as a gimmick fall mm. down because they don't have that authentic, sense of mysticism about what they're doing mm. yeah, that's a really good definitely. point man. definitely um i suppose as well like another kind kind of good jumping point would be is there any other influence that you kind of want to put into your music um that you've always sort of wanted to play about with so stylistically i i, I don't know i i think i think it's kind of fairly clear to me now what winterfield sounds like and while i don't just want to kind of release the same album every two years or something mm. I, I think that we've we've always tried to do little bits of incremental stuff that, that makes it different and interesting and keeps ourselves interested but i don't have ambitions of us uh you know doing an all say and kind of putting out an electronic album next and, <laughs> and, <laughs> that would be a shock and kind of going down that route or something even though we do like some of that stuff but uh, yeah that stuff's amazing I, yeah, yeah no, not, not to kind of talk down about it because I, I do really like some of those records, but you know, I, I don't have a, I don't have a desire to kind of make a really huge left hand turn in Winterfell to do something crazy like that. I think if I did, then I'd just make another project, and mm. and and um, you know, some of us and most of us actually have been involved in other projects over, uh, over the years, and some with other members of Winterfell and some without, you know, and. Um, you sometimes need to kind of express other things, but I don't think your your main band is the is the medium to always do that. And while I think the folk thing fit really nicely into that, which is why we decided to bring that into the Winterfellet environment, I don't think we um, we have any great um, ambition to do a you know a I don't know a Viking metal album or something or a kind of you know a, a, a kind of pirate metal album. Or something, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's not within us to want to do that kind of thing. I think. There's there's other there's other subject matter that we like to cover lyrically and obviously there's the kind of prevailing social narrative of the day that we like talking about and um, I think there's lots of unexplored elements of our own history that we still got left to talk about so I I, I don't think there's ever a kind of um, 
a lack of subject matter to kind of bring into the music. <clears throat> I think maybe the only thing I'd like to try stylistically is is um, perhaps some more expansive tracks like we did on a on our 2016 album. Um, there's a track called Green Cathedral, which is one of my mm. favourite Winterfellas songs. But I think it's also one of the ones that's maybe a little bit on a on a tangent from the kind of main source of sounds. So if I think about our albums over the years, there's um, there's a song called A Soul Unbound, which is on Threnody of Triumph. There's a song called A Care Worn Heart, which is on uh, Divination of Antiquity. And then there's Green Cathedral, which is on Dark Hereafter. And uh, Forsaken in Stone, of course. And yeah, Forsaken in Stone as well, and Divination of Antiquity as well. And I think those songs play around more with it, you know, being a bit more languid and a bit more kind of uh, expansive on the sound and bringing in some of the more... Um, I don't know, like space between it, like Cy was saying, you know, it's not, it's not just kind of blast beat and riff. It's um, it's letting the songs breathe and kind of building layers and, and it almost being, I don't know, a bit a bit more sort of doomy in a way, I guess, and, and mm. it having a, a kind of layered building approach as opposed to it being quite riffy and immediate. And I think that I, I would perhaps like to do a few more of those expansive songs because I think we found some of our most um, interesting and emotive moments of some of those songs particularly like the song green cathedral for me which which remains a, a highlight you know there's this kind of solo kind of halfway through that where i think we really kind of found this this wonderful atmosphere on that and the song you can almost imagine sort of being stood at the base of a waterfall with the kind of the water crashing there the, the sort of description of the words and the uh, and you know just feeling like i don't know there's there's, there's kind of a sort of spiritual element to it. And I guess the idea and the concept of that song Green Cathedral was, was about finding spirituality in nature rather than in the the kind of confines of, of, of a church or religion and, and how nature can probably be equally or more so kind of spiritual to you than but not. So, you know, I like some of those concepts and I like the idea of sort of doing a few deviations that kind of that, that play into that space a little bit more. But, you know, let, let's let's be honest here. Winterfellith is a atmospheric, emotional black metal band that 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 likes to kind of play with those sorts of moods and the, you know those goosebump inducing moments and those kind of punch the sky choruses and and those kind of um memorable riffs and, and that kind of that feeling that you get when you hear a record of ours I, you know we're we're still chasing that and i think we we probably forever will and i, and I don't think there's anything kind of untoward about doing that you know as i said i don't want to keep, keep repeating ourselves and if we get to that point then maybe we'll We'll have a word with ourselves, but I feel like we've always had quite a good shit filter, and that we've um, we've always tried to make the best records we can. So I, I hope we can kind of continue doing that, and whatever twists and turns come with that. And, and as well, you know, we um, we recently got a new um, lead guitar player, Russ. Mm. So um, it, you know, whatever he's going to bring to the mix now, when we start writing again, I think it, you know, will undoubtedly sort of take things in some slightly different directions as well. So that's probably no bad thing. And, um, you know, long may that continue, I guess. Absolutely. Obviously, like with Winterfella, there's like an element of escapism. Like, is that something that, would you say, is the most reoccurring element of Winterfella? Is that something that you like people to sort of feel immersed in your albums? I, don't, I, I wonder if escapism is not quite the right term for me. I, I do get that. I do get the sense of what you're saying. I, th I think for me, it's more about... Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's about immersion or if it's about um, atmosphere. And, and I think in atmosphere, lots of different senses. Obviously, atmosphere in that it, you know, it gets broadly described as atmospheric black metal. But I think sometimes you can kind of make seven or eight or ten or twelve minutes kind of melt into seeming like a few because of the way that you, 
you kind of structure tracks and you kind of you sort of bring people into this kind of time vortex with the way that you kind of craft songs so I think that's really immersive and I think it sort of brings people into it. So through that atmosphere and through that emotion, I think it can really kind of pull you into a strange sense of being. So, so it, 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 it kind of distorts your time and kind of, uh, and sort of gets in your head. And I, and I hope that's kind of what we do. And I think, I think that's for me, one of the feelings that I'm chasing with the with writing the music. And, and again, you know, when we're sat in the studio and we, and we do some of this stuff and, and you know, you kind of get the raised goosebumps and it gives you a bit of a chill it's not it's not a cliche to say that, that happens you know often for mm -hmm. some of the stuff we're writing and um and i like to think that other people feel that and um that's that's where i come from anyway with it i think if we can make people feel like that they're traversing a lakeland fell in horizontal rain then i think we've done our job <laughs> it, does, it does have that effect to be fair yeah it's like definitely puts you into like a trance like yeah you zone out, but you feel like relaxed, but it's also like engaging at the same time. It's like a weird sort of like, it's like a, a void that you're in. It just kind of take you away. So, you know, and you can be looking at the album cover and the art, but you feel like you're there. It's just very I'm interesting. Glad you feel that. I'm glad you feel yeah. that. In fact, there was, there was this one comment um, by a guy whose name I recognize, but I don't really know, that was on uh, the, the video for Halloween of Adam, the kind of the title track yeah. of our acoustic album. And he posted something yeah. saying, um, I remember sort of, standing um you know as, as a kid in the kind of shadow of the, the the northern english moorlands and fells and and i've never found an album or a song that kind of sort of puts into context that feeling for me uh, as well as this did and, and that, that really meant a lot to me because i think we probably grew up in the same environment and i think we, we we were probably both looking out across those same landscapes from our kind of childhood homes and 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 sort of feeling that imposition of those kind of strange scary you know expansive and interesting landscapes and um and to be able to catch that musically and someone to kind of be able to picture that when they're hearing it i think is is a is a strange feat and i'm glad we kind of have managed that for some people i think i don't mean to i don't mean to compare us to uh somebody as um legendary as the late great sir edward elgar being a composer of, <laughs> <laughs> of you know music music set to landscape um, but you know that's what he's known for. He he yeah. puts you in that place of from where from where I'm originally from in Worcestershire, which is where I, I've now moved back to, having lived in and around the High Peak with Chris for you know twelve years or so. Um, you know those he you listen to like a classic piece of Elgar, and he puts you in those rolling English hills, doesn't he? You know rolling countryside mm -hmm. of 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 like the midlands and um and that was always our aim was to make you know put some put put you in the place that that we're you know the lake district or the peak district or the mm. you know the west yeah, pennines yeah. the pennine moors i'm sort of smirking listening to you talking about elgar just uh just yeah. thinking about us uh we recorded a, a track which releases a seven inch on our acoustic album which is oh. like <laughs> Attached to a grave. Oh God! And, um, and and we recorded um, uh, some footage of our, of the band kind of playing in this in this church in the centre of Worcester. Let me, let me give you the sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, Chris, but yeah. there needs to be some context for this yeah. church. So, so we needed to record a, a music video for the track "Latched to a Grave," which is a very sombre track, and mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's. Um, it's 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 a it's a riddle 
about um, a, a, a sword. I think you could probably sort of say it better than me, couldn't, couldn't you, Chris? Like the, yeah, the, the, the lyrical themes basically kind of lead you through like that. You know, I sit by a king's side, a queen uses me to kind of knight people. I'm the kind of the opposite of the kind of writer's pen and all this sort of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So you're supposed to kind of get through it and think like, who am I? What am I? And I'm a sword. And it's talking about kind of ancient uh, poetry and riddles as a kind of... Uh, a sort of a thing of many ancient cultures. So anyway, we did this video and we went to Worcester to sort of record the band bit of it. If you've ever seen it, there's kind of the sort of fight scenes with this kind of reenactment people we, we used and, and but the band bit of it is sort of sat in this church in, in the center of Worcester. Which is the old, it's the old, basically it's the oldest church in Worcester. It dates back to the um, 10th century. It was wow. um, originally built by um, the, the Bishop Wolfston um, who's, who was then sainted, um, uh, and um, he was the kind of guy that commissioned this church, and it's built on the, um, it's well, it's actually built on the site of a pagan temple, um, which was um, an Anglo-Saxon pagan temple, and before that it was mm. a Roman pagan temple, and before that it would have been a Celtic pagan temple, because often is the way when, uh, when a culture comes into another culture and imposes itself on that culture it takes all its holy sites and makes it into their own so the mm. romans will have put their pagan sites on the celtic pagan sites and so forth so forth so this church is on a place of great historical importance in terms of um religious history of the area um and it predates the in, like the immense massive gothic cathedral in worcester um so it's, it's an amazing place and my, my dad has some involvement in the in the upkeep of this place and um he's involved with the trust that runs it so he has, he has the keys to this place so we basically asked for permission to film the band performance bit in candlelight in this church so we had all these candelabras around the high altar and we we're all like performing next to it and um so of course there's these like piano and keyboard tracks within the track. So our keyboardist Mark was down recording the video with us. And in this church is this beautiful old stand-up piano. And we thought, oh great, we can use that in the video. Brilliant. So we all, like this four or five of us, lifting it up, dragging it across the church, put on the high <laughs> altar like candelabras on it with wax dripping <laughs> off the candles onto the top of this like beautiful piano and after we'd finished filming we moved it back and like you know because we wanted to leave the place nice and tidy and leave it as we found it and as we were lifting it down off the like high altar um one of the legs broke because we like dropped it <laughs> <laughs> and um we were looking at it and it's like what's the name of this piano and it had the the name elgar on this piano uh, and um, like Edward Elgar and his family are from literally about a mile away from where I'm sat right now in the next village. They, they, their, their family is from here, and they had a piano shop in Worcester before Edward Elgar was a famous composer, and they, they would make their own pianos and tune pianos and so forth. And they were involved in this church when they were, you know, going about there doing their thing and this piano is one of the elgar family pianos like an absolute antique masterpiece 
Anthony Brown. It was probably played and tuned by Edward Elgar. <laughs> we just dropped it and broke the record. Making the Latch to a Grave video. So if you go and watch the Latch to a Grave video, you'll see the Elgar piano in there. <laughs> it smells it so guilty, it just like breaking. It wasn't irreparably broken. I hate to add it. It just sort of came loose a bit. You know. Yeah, it was fine. My dad told me it was fine afterwards. So you just have to put some super glue on it or something. Just oh no! Honestly, when we, when we found out, because we just thought it was some like knackered kind of out of tune piano that was at the side of the room that Mark could just sort of sit by and it looked kind of like he's the pianist, but he's not playing the video. Blah blah blah. But it turns out to be Elgar's, and we're all just like, for fucks. So, so there's us. There's us. We're all about history and heritage and honouring like our heritage. And there's us absolutely desecrating a piece of English musical heritage. <laughs> <laughs> I just see like an article in Metal Hammer the next week. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. oh shit. Not, not our finest moment. Well, as long as it's not another fucking article about Corey Taylor that they put out every day, that'd be probably... Oh, yeah. was... Me and Brad have ranted about that on the podcast like so many times. I said, if you're a new band and you're fucking, you know about a release summit and you're like oh this might get some attention and Corey taylor farts in the direction of fucking metal hammer yeah your album's not getting fucking covered mate <laughs> honestly today's like I, I don't know it just winds up for just every day i'm sitting like they're just following around with like a tape recorder or something in a bloody ipad or something oh, yeah, i feel, like, I feel like they need to someone needs to send them an email going look you know the shit that happens you just don't always have to ask Corey taylor <laughs> like, maybe you should just, you know, leave the guy alone for a little bit. Like, <laughs> I think he needs to sit down for a while and have a beer. Imagine the uh, Slipknot schedule. It's like, hang on, Corey's, uh, we're going to be 20 minutes later. Like, why? Corey's had 12 uh, emails from Mel. Mel. I'm asking his opinion on the uh, lip gloss. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I said this this morning. There's some amazing people involved with that magazine, and and I definitely lament the loss of the printed medium. Don't get me wrong, but mm. when I see that every week, I'm just like, fucking hell, what's this guy to say now? Like, you know, why yeah. is it? What's it for? Yeah, he's yeah, always but... like he's his own worst enemy. Anyway, enough about that. Yeah, <laughs> Mel Hammer's great. Like some of the people uh, there that run, particularly the more underground stuff, like Jonathan Seltzer, mm. absolute absolute legends. So. Uh, a lot of time for him. Mm, definitely. definitely. Um, one thing as well, I sort of on the on, on a different subject. Um, what what would you say is your absolute guilty pleasures in music? You know, like what do you sort of listen to? Um, opposed from you know heavier stuff and you know like metal and stuff like that. Guilty pleasure. I I don't think guilty pleasures exist in music. You know, I, I think mm. you obviously be quite elitist about stuff and and um. And I guess, you know, everyone likes to be, you know, there's probably stuff that you listen to kind of coming up that, that still holds significance for you. That if you were to kind of say to somebody, oh, I'm really into this record, they'd be like, but you're in a black metal band. Mm. Like, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I like all sorts of stuff. I, you know, I'm a big fan of kind of black death metal and doom metal and stuff, but I also quite like um, um, ambient music and, and, and some kind of like, you know, cinematic stuff and jazz stuff. Mm. So. I don't know if I've, I've got any like huge clangers in my discography, like you know, I'm really into kind of drowning pool or something. You know, I don't, I don't think it's like that. But, um... We've we, me and you, Chris, we've really been binging a lot of ambient electronic music lately, haven't we? Like loads of um, 
great. Are they French, that label? Uh, oh, yeah, Ultimate Records. Team Ultimate Records. They put out really, really nice, minimal, um, ambient, electronic um, sort of stuff, and it's it's fantastic. I listen to a lot of it at work. Um, <laughs> and, um, I've, I mean, we've always all really liked ambient music anyway. Um, I think that kind of ties in with black metal, obviously ambient music and black metal go hand in hand, like a lot of um, the more kind of like atmospheric traditional folk does. Um, so yeah, a lot of ambient music, that ultimate, ultimate stuff. Um, that's really good. Um, a lot of um, sort, sort of ambient synth stuff that's more linked with black metal. Um, that's, that's, that's great. A lot of stuff like that. I'm just yeah. looking through my kind of like I've got my um my sort of you know iTunes open on one side just looking at what have I got that's like a real kind of like guilty pleasure I I don't, I don't know really like for me personally you know I've been a fan of metal for such a long time um mm -hmm. I think there's certain bands that maybe have like you know not kind of maintained credibility over the years but but did kind of amazing albums when I was coming up like maybe a band that might be considered like that for some people you know I, i've always been quite a big fan of the, the band of deftones mm. and, oh, yeah, even though, and even though that's you know even though they're a big kind of mainstream metal band i guess i i always do think that they always kind of maintain quite a an odd and unique sound and, and never really other than a few sort of singles ever kind of kind of kowtowed to the the sort of mainstreamers. They they sort of became mainstream in spite of themselves, really. I think they were yeah, weird, yeah, aren't they? Because they were they were lumped in with that whole kind of new metal movement of the late '90s, but they never sounded anything like any of that well, stuff. Yeah, that's what I always thought. I always saw it as like a misclassification, like just because Absolutely. it was in that time period that like, I feel like people lumped them. But when you listen to like some of their like earlier releases, it's nothing like it. Like you can't really put it on the same like level as Corn and stuff because there's like really good intricate made songs in every single album they've ever made. Still the same now as well. Like I think Deftones have always had a unique sound, and I don't think anyone can deny that. Especially like Chino's vocal style. Like there's yeah. not many people that you know try. Well, people might try and copy him, but he's definitely the first to try and do what he did. And I think, like, you know, Steph Carpenter's guitar playing and that weird sort of style he uses with, like, those kind of weird augmented chords and that kind of sound. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that kind of necessarily influenced me per se, but I definitely, I think I was, certainly when I was doing my other band, Atavist, and doing kind of more Doom stuff, I was definitely chasing some of those weird kind of chord shapes and those weird kind of atmospheric sounds that they were creating on some of those early albums. So I don't think it's... Um, you know, an oddity to like those bands, and I, and I like them right from you know when I was at kind of high school and stuff, and kind of came all the way through, and, and I've always kind of had had time for them. Despite the fact that everyone seems to think that that band album White Pony is their best, where to me it's actually one of the least of their albums for me. Yeah, it's mm. not one of my favorites. I think it's their worst one, or certainly like up there. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I guess that might be a, a guilty pleasure of sorts for me, perhaps. Um, even though I don't think it's that. What I would class as a guilty pleasure of mine musically, I don't know, Enya. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, yeah I, I like Mr. Peter. I, I was always a big fan of those early Radiohead albums, for example. Um, doesn't chime with a lot of kind of metal fans usually. I'm, Simon and I are big fan of, fans of a band called the Cinematic Orchestra. I don't know if you know those guys, which is kind of sort of like jazz, kind of fusion y sort of stuff. And, yeah, I can see a lot of metal fans kind of hating on that kind of stuff, but but to me, it, it 
the drummer particularly, this guy Luke Flowers, is one of the most unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like, like, I'll, I'll sit at home rehearsing drums on my little electric kit I've got at home. And more often than not, like, I'll warm up for about 45 minutes just playing stuff like, playing along to stuff like Cinematic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, the drums are so technical. They're, you know, they're, they're way beyond any, like, metal drummer. I mean, it's a totally different style. But yeah. I think one of the important things about being a musician is, you know, um, playing different styles of music to the style that you actually play is only going to make you a better musician. I think so. Oh, definitely. Not that I'm not that I'm the best drummer in the world, but you know, I try and try and expand my uh, musical horizons drum wise and listen to lots of interesting stuff. I came across this band recently, actually, Chris. You might not. You might not have. I meant. I've been meaning to mention these to you, but this kind of um, technical. Uh, proggy band um and i came across them because of the drummer and the drummer's amazing um this band called pliny p-l-i-n-i um and they're instrumental there's like a bass player guitarist and a drummer and uh, that's really good really good fantastic sort Mm. of technical um but but still quite atmospheric music yeah that's that's what i like about them you know even i like ambient music and that kind of stuff I always like bands, not exclusively, but I always like bands that play around with atmosphere and find different ways of kind of chasing yeah. those same um, same feelings that I think we're going for with our own music. And even though they do it in different ways, you know, there's there's great albums by bands like Ace Dana, who've got a new album called Inks Out, which is a, which is a really amazing kind of sort of slightly dance-influenced ambient album. There's that band who've got a hilarious name, Woob, W-O-O-B. <laughs> they've, got, they've got a great album called Lost Metropolis, which is somewhere between kind of like dancey ambient and kind of synthwave, um, sort of synthwave stuff. Yeah, and it's just like the way those guys are playing around with atmosphere using the kind of limited palette of instruments they've got. It's unbelievable. And I think if, if, you're, if you're an artist that really wants to make an impact in and do things that are interesting. I, I don't think you can just sort of think, I'm only going to listen to Burzum and Mayhem, and, and that's kind of, you know, my uh, my palette of stuff. Um, it's it's funny, though, isn't it? Because you look at, I know we spoke about Olva earlier, and, you, you know, those first three Olva, the, like, trilogy, the famous three Olva black metal-related albums, even though um, one of them's obviously a folk album, they are legendary records. Um, but I pretty much love most of their output their new album's amazing yeah i got yeah. A bit, a bit, it's fantastic do you know what it didn't it didn't it wasn't as immediate as something like um the assassination of julius caesar which is one of my favorite albums they've done in recent years um but uh, it it's become as good over time it was a real grower for me um and um, it's some amazing tracks on 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 that record. And I think some of the newer older stuff, it, no matter what kind of genre they play around with, um, they always sound like older. And it's yeah, weird. It's like it's you so said true. about our folk album. It's like you can listen to like Natan's Madrigal or Bergtat, and it mm. and you can listen to the Assassination of Julius Caesar or their new album, and you you can still tell it's the same band. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's testament to them, and that's one of the reasons I love them. They're one of my favorite bands. Incredible band. Definitely. I think it's important, yeah, to like keep your sounds. You know, don't be afraid to include elements, but never stray too far from the path. And I think, like you know, like you said with Olver, they do do that. Like with the new album, it still sounds like them, even though it might be like sort of a dark electronic album. You know, you I can think, still. I think it's because. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I no, think that, I think that's because. 
And I think that's, again, one of the things we were talking about before. It's because it's authentic. It's, it's that authenticity. They're doing what they, what they love and what they really want to do now. Um, it wouldn't probably be authentic if Olva just tried to do a black metal album now. Yeah. So it's not, it's not what they want to do. You know, it might be what we want to do, you know. Um, but, but what we want them to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but to them, to them, it's not, it's, that's not them anymore. And, 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 and they are authentically as all that is now. And that's what's, what's, I think when bands force themselves to do something of a different genre, there's lots of bands that have done it and you can see it a mile off. And, and that lack yeah. of authenticity just puts me off straight away. Just think about that whole, like, new metal era, you know? Like, if, if you think about, um, I think of a band like Iron Maiden, you know, they were enormous mm. kind of at the start of their, their, their time. And even though they, they were kind of sort of much maligned during the kind of the 90s period, you know, when, when Bruce had left and when Adrian had left and when kind of Blaze Bailey was on vocals and all that sort of stuff, Actually, if you kind of go back and listen to that period of albums now, Iron Maiden have always been Iron Maiden, and they didn't kind of sort of kowtow to the sort of the new metal trends of the day, and they weren't trying to be Korn or whoever, and they weren't trying mm-hmm. to keep up with those boys. And even though they maybe kind of played smaller shows for a few years as a result, you know, all of a sudden Brave New World comes out, and they're probably the biggest now that they've ever been. Yeah, that's yeah. Like, you know, they, they, they have always been a band, even though they've been massive, and, you know, they're, they're probably the biggest or one of the biggest metal bands that there are i also find them quite authentic in the sense that they've always just been a heavy metal band they've not tried to like you know they weren't putting like um hip-hop hip-hop rap (laughs) on their albums in the 90s you know where bands even like black sabbath for example on forbidden had people like ice cube on like tracks you know like the illusion of power on forbidden and stuff like that you know you yeah. Even the greats were kind of like falling foul of the kind of the 90s period of metal. And I just think that sometimes you just have to stick to your guns and do what matters to you and, you know, not kind of fall foul of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, look at, look at Sepultura, you know, Sepultura, absolute classic 80s thrash band. Get into the 90s and Roots, Bloody Roots came out and it's it's all gone out the window, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> See, but they have gone back to the like... They not, have, not yeah. thrash metal, but they've gone to like a sort of death metal prog route now. They're, they've had such a weird career, Sepultura. Yeah. But yeah. They, the newest album is it's almost a bit of a return to form, but they've definitely yeah. included a lot of the death metal of today in there. Yeah, the, well, they, I mean, their current drummer is unreal. Oh, that he's guy. absolutely ridiculous. He's unbelievable, that guy. He's like super technical and hits with 100% velocity. Oh, on. yeah. It's ridiculous. Eloy... Casa Grande. Yeah, amazing yeah. drummer. Incredible drummer. And he's drumming. You just think, like, how doesn't he break sticks or heads on every hit? Because it's just, like, 1,000% commitment, isn't he? What's amazing yeah. is, like, you know you know how, like, most, like, modern death and black metal drummers will be playing? Probably, if you're playing the sort of speeds that he plays at, you're probably going to be um, at least playing with triggers for the consistency of, you know, the, the beats. Um but that guy, he hits. He his pedal strokes are so fast and so hard. Every even his like slave pedal, like his left foot, the velocity is as hard as a full powerful right hand stroke mm-hmm. on his pedal. 
yeah. at full speed. It's up, it's impressive stuff to watch. You yeah. must eat a lot of protein powder. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> pre-workout every time he goes goes on stage. Yeah. He's yeah. down a bunch yeah. of pre-workout and he's like, he's right, I'm ready, guys. The pre-workout that guy, isn't he? And like, so besides like music then, um, what are your hobbies and just outside? You know, when you're not playing in Winterfell, if, um, when you're not reading up on folklore, what's the uh, what's the interest for you guys? What do you guys do? <laughs> Fun. Well, um, I, I say that's probably changed and morphed over the years. So, um, uh, so moving into the kind of latter period of Winterfell, you know, um, the majority of us are fathers. So uh, actually, only half of us. Only half. Oh, no. <laughs> now, now that Dan's left, yeah, there's only half of us that are fathers. But Simon and I are fathers, so um, mm. I've got a two-year-old, and Simon's got um, five-year-old and a three-year-old. Bluebell and Willow, five and three now. So you can probably see some of their artwork on the wall there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Some potential Winterfell album covers there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and I've got a little lad, Ralph. So. Um, I don't know. I, I think our kind of, you know, in, in the early days, obviously, you know, you go on our Facebook pages, there's, there's, there's kind of reels and reels of us kind of walking together as a band and going exploring some of those places and, you know, um, hiking out. And obviously Simon's got a really big interest in kind of um, uh, riding, you know, um, mountain biking and kind of traveling around and, and doing some of those kind of interesting courses and stuff like that. So. So there's that kind of outdoorsy nature of the band, whereas now I think, you know, obviously being uh, the father of children, you know, my hobbies now are watching whatever will keep my son from crying on television and, uh, <laughs> and, and Disney soundtracks on vinyl, I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for the frozen vinyl. Uh, yeah. Oh, God, my daughter's obsessed with Frozen. So, uh, so do you know what? As far as kids' Disney stuff goes, it's not the, it's not, not the worst one of them it's it's not it's not too bad but yeah i i know that soundtrack way too well <laughs> but i think you know we all we all are obviously outside of our own activities musically we're all big fans of music as you could probably tell from you know the conversation that we've had this evening yeah um we're all big sort of collectors of music and we we have like a uh even though you know we all used to live within like a couple of miles of each other um now we're a little bit more spread out not too far um so but we all chat we chat pretty much most days like for quite a long period just about you know records vinyl um alcohol <laughs> I, I think if you don't though you know you, you can kind of become quite out of touch with what's going on and and, and i I worry that lots of bands who are kind of just churning arms out and who kind of do it for a job almost forget sometimes that there is music coming out and there are other things beyond, you know, Rain and Blood that have come out since the, the last kind of 30 years, whatever it is, that, that, that are pushing things in interesting directions. And I don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's dreadful to be um, on top of what's going on and kind of keeping abreast of, of, of interesting and new metal albums, you know. At no. NEW rather than NEW. Yeah. <laughs> uh, innovative albums coming out. And when, you know, people say that metal's dead, rock's dead, I'm just like, you're just not looking in the right places. Like, it's... there's tons of albums every year that are coming out that are really pushing the boundaries of music. Mm. I'd, say, uh, I'd say it's probably bigger than ever nowadays. Biggest it's been since, like, the 80s, definitely. Um, I think, yeah. 
I think it's hard to be a big metal band now. You know, if I think about even when we started as a band, you know, we were coming towards the end of when people sort of bought physical records and were kind of transitioning to that digital era. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to start a brand new band now without having the providence of, you know, either like the labels that we already work with other bands or kind of people knowing who we are. You know, if you if you're starting a band from the ground up now, you know, you, you, like we're on Bandcamp and buy stuff on there and follow the music press stuff. How many albums come out a week? 50 you know and that's the main the, the big ones you know think about all those little artists that are kind of recording at home you know as much as i think it's a great thing that the technologies allow people to record credibly at home and all that sort of stuff try be a band now it's unbelievable oh yeah i could, I could put hurt? some input in there i could put it i started a band recently it's, it's been a fucking nightmare what's your experience of it then um it's it's a bit difficult because it's like the scenes are a bit different to the point where no one's really that supportive. Um, so I you'll get if you make friends like I've got friends that are in other bands you know they support us quite a bit, um, but as a whole scenes are kind of take it as a competition, which is like a bit of an annoyance because it's like you know we're kind of meant to be helping each other out here. Do you know what I mean like yeah, but then when there's probably fifty bands from your town trying to get the same support slot with whatever bands coming around, whenever you're allowed to play gigs again, it, it becomes quite a a challenging thing to kind of get heard. And I think it's only getting worse for bands to try and try and get their names out there, unless you somehow stumble across like being the next ghost or something, and you know write some kind of mainstream hit. I just think like, mm-hmm. you know, if I think about where we started and where we are now, the level of records we sell and the kind of presence we've had. You know, we're like 13 or 14 years down the road now, you know, yeah. on our seventh or eighth album, whatever, on seventh album, you know, and and even still, you know, it's it, it's hard to kind of be heard amongst all those other things that are coming out. So God knows what it's going to be like for, for some of the other guys coming through. So I think one of our big mantras as well on a tangent is that we've always tried to to at least bring some of the kind of UK bands that we like on the on the road with us and, and, and try and give them a platform. And... and that kind of old cliche of trying to be the person that you needed when you were at that stage, you know? Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause it, the, I think the most annoying part about being a band now is it's almost like you have to treat it like how you always, what you, how you want to be for the rest of your entire music career. So like when we've just finished off our first like debut track, um, we was in the studio, it took about four months of writing and then, like a week in the studio um to sort of sort out and um now this conversation it's kind of like instead of releasing it, it's all about marketing and how we want to uh, appeal to people and how white like, our image should be and it's just kind of shit where it's like doing it on yourself right by yourself it's kind of like fucking a bit daunting whereas like i feel like a couple years before a lot of the focus was mainly on your music now it's like you you know like you got about 50 percent focus on your music uh, 20% focus on your social media, 10% focus on something else, and then, you know, the I rest kind of... I, honestly, I think it's less. Like, I, you know, I, I, there's a there's a guy we know really well, uh, a producer called Mark Minette. He did the like, last uh, My Dying Bride album, and he used to be in that band Kills mm-hmm. This, based out of Huddersfield Uni, funnily enough, and uh, he's got a great studio there. Anyway, he, um, he was saying to me, which I totally agree with, and, and I've sort of repeated in a few interviews, he was saying that when you start a band, nobody tells you that you're actually getting into the textiles industry. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, if yeah, I think yeah. about how much time we actually spent writing and performing in 2020 versus how much time I spent folding vinyl into cardboard boxes and posting T-shirts and stuff like that, and, you know, all the sort of other stuff that 
unfortunately comes along with it, making videos and, you know, posting on socials and all those kind of things. It, it, it's really strange. And I think to be ahead in the, in the in, as a band now, you, you're expected to be some kind of like master of marketing as well as, you know, digital design and merch production and writing great records and marketing great records and then competing with the hundred bands that are coming out that week. You know, it's no, it's no joke now. And I think people just starting a band for fun. Well, you know, you get going to get kind of a hard reality quite quickly, I think. Well, yeah, that reality set in quite quickly because it's, you have to almost treat you. you I always thought, oh, it'd be fun. Um, and then you immediately settling in, it's kind of like, okay, this is actually a business. <laughs> I've basically started my own business now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a rockstar yeah. lifestyle, they don't tell you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I, you know, even though I'm, even though I'm not like the biggest proponent of them, you know, we've all seen the memes of like what backstage really looks like, and it's just like guys sat around staring at their phones, kind of, you know, eating a ham sandwich. Eating a ham sandwich, <laughs> as opposed to like, you know naked chicks and coke and you know mock crew so uh, i think i think the reality of being in a band these days is, is quite a lot more practical than perhaps it ever was you know but you know when you think about like when i was when i was young and you know you, you remember people like corn saying we spent three million making this record i was like if you can get five grand out of a label to make a record these days i think you're doing well yeah <laughs> yeah it's like uh jimmy jaster always says when he when he used to do you know v features uh, labels just wouldn't wouldn't pay him for features, and he'd always kind of get frustrated. Like, come on, man, at least buy me a fucking sandwich or something. <laughs> That's what he always used to say. Cause it's like yeah. labels now are so like, no, no, no. We know it costs this. You're gonna do it for this, and there you go. Like, <laughs> yeah. No. I think labels have obviously struggled with the uh, adjusting to the way in which music is bought as well. You know. Yeah, definitely. Of course, definitely. like you know. Obviously, that filters down to bands financially. Um, but, you know, what, like, 20 years ago, what would sell for a number one record? Number one's now, a number one is like a tenth yeah. of what it was in physical sales, which is probably, it's probably, it's probably less than that now, to be honest. So I think <laughs> bigger in the charts. <laughs> it's just so weird how like the music industry sort of changed over the years like like vinyl's making a comeback which luckily you know yeah, it, it really is. that's but, a great yeah. thing that's one of the really positive things i think about um uh as a result of music uh being bought differently is that there are still plenty of people that want to buy physical music and cd's basically obviously an obsolete format now um there's no point in it. Um, uh, and, and that's what's seen that resurgence in, in, in vinyl. And that's, 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 that's wonderful because, you know, it's a great format to, to have. You can't, you know, you can't, like, you've got a big 12-inch um, vinyl sleeve with artwork printed as big as that. It's, mm. you, know, you can do so much more with it um, aesthetically, you know, different colour vinyl and so forth. It's a, it's a much nicer thing to spend your money on than a CD. I think, oh, yeah. I think, I think it sort of crosses over into art, doesn't it? As opposed to it just being like a marketing tool, like a CD is just like a kind of a, a delivery mechanism for the digital format, isn't it, essentially? Yeah, well, I, I just love the fact that when I buy a vinyl, you know, I own it, I'm supporting the band that I like, you know, and when I get it, it's just something about, you know, like if I come home after a stressful day at work, and I, I pop open, you know, the vinyl and I take out the case and then I just pop it down and I just sit the little needle on there and just sit down and decompress. It's, 
it's a whole ritual thing, look in play, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now this, I know it can't be denied. Vinyl sounds better than any other music platform, like better than Spotify, better than CD. Like I, I didn't realize until I got a vinyl player myself. There's the complete contrast between that and listening on Spotify. And now I just want to go back, like you know, I just want to get as many vinyls as possible just to hear how that band sounds in the vinyl format. But you know, we 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 spent a lot of time over the years making and you know mastering and mixing albums and stuff. We spent a lot of time with this guy Tim Turan, who runs Turan Audio, who do a lot of mastering stuff. And he's mastered everybody, you know, Nightside Eclipse he did, and you know, everything from kind of Ginger Baker and Madness right through to Status Quo. Yeah, Status Quo, and, and then Winter Fellow and Emperor at the other end of it. You know, he's done everything. And he used to say to me that he he really like laments this kind of modern digital era, the sense that you have you, you know you have to push things to be like maximize like absolute maximum sort of brick wall limited, and it's all just kind of crunched digitally, and it's it's super compressed, and it's got to be louder than the track before it, and it's like loudness wars almost. And while mm. obviously you want your record to have presence and the mastering to kind of add that that sheen to the the, the great mix that you've done you know it, it's got to it got to a point with platforms like spotify and stuff that it's just absolutely ridiculous like for example even just watching tv you know you go on like something like amazon prime and you then you flip back to netflix something and like one so loud for the same yeah. level of volume, yeah. a third of the volume you just think like it's just this kind of like loudness wars and this kind of industrialized normalization of all music so if you're playing things in a playlist because nobody plays albums anymore god forbid you know that um all of it's at the same level and you know you can hear it when you're using it to be the background noise to whatever else you're doing rather than enjoying it as a as a piece of art so yeah it's a it's a it's a whole mess that stuff so i'm glad yeah. to come back like you said and I, and I don't know whether it's necessarily the best way to hear it but i think it's certainly kind of the way that the ear accepts it the best isn't it you know it's um that kind of analog format and the just just the the kind of warmth of it, I think, and the the fact that it, it can't have such expansive frequencies on it, so you don't get those ridiculous high trebly peaks, and you don't get those like bass troughs in it, and if, and you just get the kind of a little bit more of the purity of the record. I think that really appeals to to people, and you know me certainly. and me as well, certainly. Yeah, I I think it's a a fact of as well, like like what you were saying, you know, you see it as as art rather than music. It it is definitely art because when you listen to a vinyl, you can't skip it. If you don't, you know, you're not that fond of a song, you can't just go skip. You've got to listen to it. And that's the thing, you listen to it the way the artist wanted you to listen to it when they made the album. And that's what's such a, a good thing about it. It gives me an appreciation for this album that <laughs> I've listened to over a hundred times and I like it. But I'm like listening to it going, ah, shit, that flows better with that. That's why they probably ordered it in that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you yeah. listen to it how it was meant to be listened to. Well, that's, that's why I'm glad that, like, you know, younger people are starting to realise that. And not to sound like some old dude, you know, I'm not, but that, that music is not just those few singles that are on a playlist that you put on because you want to hear, like, you know, ambient playlists because that's what you feel like today. You know, you actually kind mm. of hear the idea. And, that, and that's why I think we've always had concepts for our albums and we've always tried to make sure that there's a kind of ever flow to it and you can play it through as one thing and it's not just some kind of like weird contrasting set of songs that don't mean anything to each other and that it works as a body of art so mm. yeah i'm 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 uh, i'm very pleased that vinyl has made a comeback and um other than the fact that i have to pack loads of it and take it to the post office every week but otherwise <laughs> <laughs> much to the lament of gloss at post office <laughs> <laughs> 
the fact that I know some of the post office workers better than my members of my own family is probably a telling sign of uh, of my uh, misspent weeks. Um, I think we're getting to like sort of the end point of the interview. Um, what we always like to sort of end on um, is sort of like, what advice would you give to a band just starting out that over years of being a band yourselves really would benefit them? You know, like what would you say? Don't do do this. Don't do that. Do you know what I mean? Here's a here's a great tip that uh, will serve you well once you're once we're hopefully able to play when bands are able to play live again when you uh when you're setting up for a show get to know the sound engineer's name and befriend Mm. him and be nice to him or her could be a you know our sound engineer is a woman actually she's incredible hannah and um just find out their name and just be nice to them and polite and next time you turn up at that venue they'll treat you brilliantly yeah, I, th- I think I've got two pieces of advice. Like one, I've, I think both I've already kind of mentioned. One is try and be, you know, from my perspective as, a, as an older band now, is that I want to try and be um, the person that I needed when I was a young band and, and you know, be available to people who, who want your advice. But then I think the second thing is don't just think that writing a good album is what's going to make you big because it ain't, mm. you know. Um, you could have the best record in the world, but if no fucker hears it, then it's yeah. gonna it's gonna kind of drift into the sounds of time. You need to be by some by hook or by crook or by teaching yourself. You need to be uh, an expert of marketing. You need to be try and create yourself an authentic aesthetic. Find someone that can design merch. Make sure you get good stuff printed and, and always kind of keep consistency of your image and you know make sure that you, the stuff you're putting out is cohesive and and that you build relationships with people. I think. People just expect to make a good record and labels are going to fall over themselves to sign it. But like I said, when there's 100 records coming out every week, no one's going to give a fuck about your band unless you kind of make yourself known, you know, build relationships with people that put out records. Make make sure you're kind of polite to your um, booking agents and your PR people and your, you know, make sure you value them because they're doing an amazing job of trying to get you out there. And I think people forget with their egos sometimes that, it's not just about the four of you. It's about the team that surrounds you and, and how you are with them and and how you treat people as well. And, um, you know, be a master of marketing and textiles as well as uh, a songwriter. And I think that'll, mm-hmm. that'll see you see you well. And, uh, yeah, good luck because it's fucking hard out there now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, guys. Um, love your new album. Really hope I get to be standing in the field watching you guys at Bloodstock. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it all goes ahead of the roadmap. And uh, yeah, wish you guys the best. That's yeah, this was this was absolutely great. Absolute pleasure for getting you on, guys. Um, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having us, Cheers. guys. Really nice yeah. to meet you both. And uh, thanks for having us. No, no worries, no worries. Our pleasure. Right. Cheers, Cheers, guys. Bye. Thank you. Have a nice Take it day. easy. Bye.